Black Cats Run Podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cats Run. Speed is the essential ambition for all endurance sports. The driving question, how can I go fast forever? That's where we find it the most gratifying, appealing, addictive, engaging, and it's what keeps so many of us coming back for more. Every sport has its own strange systems of belief about speed. In today's episode, we use the example of what speed might mean and what it maybe should mean in the discipline of running, and then also try to extend that and say, what can we understand about speed, its utility, and the practice and development of it in endurance sport in general? Let's get into today's episode. Speed merchant, one of the first phrases I remember learning to describe people who could turn on the jets at the end of the race. And for middle distance and distance runners, the 400 meters is sort of this archetypal illustration of your speed. I don't know really know why it's the 400, but that comes up all the time. Well, what's your quarter mile speed? Speed kills. I think people have heard this. Maybe more than they're here, speed merchant in usage. If speed kills, then those of us with speed, the speed merchants are merchants of death. It's a unique feeling to watch at the end of a race, any race, when somebody out in the lead and you just can tell there's a shift and they're going to get caught and they get walked down all the way to the line as a spectator and as somebody who understands these sports from your own experience your empathy both with the predator and the prey there really drives that sense of engagement and connection and it's something we all have I think at some point a fascination with how do we develop speed? How do we get fast? And a lot of what we've talked about on this podcast, and I'm sure we'll continue to talk about is recognizing that a big part of the ability to create speed has to do with developing our aerobic capacity to train. And then that develops when we train with an aerobic capacity mindset and approach and we're evaluating to see, are we getting that develop development? Are we being responsive in our mindset and trying to actively evaluate our training and not just wait until the race? Then we're going to get faster. 
but there's also this question of and like how do you really have speed in that sense of like the decisive moment why do some people have that and some people don't and i think it's certainly the case as we see across everything that people do that there's going to be variants that some people are going to excel in certain disciplines of sport and some people are not going to be quite as superlative and i don't think that's good or bad i think that we can all derive satisfaction from our own sense of growth right and our sense of competence and there's a difference between fighting to feel like you're generating any speed and having somebody blow by you at the end and you're left like well i couldn't even participate in that arm wrestling match because i couldn't even bring out of me this thing that you have inside but it's seen as very arrogant to you know, insist that you have speed and, and you could have done it. But I think everybody has felt that at times, that sense of like, you know, you feel uncoordinated, you know, um, like a newborn cult, right? You're just fumbling and, you you know, and you finish, sometimes it's like you finish, you're like, I'm not even tired, right? I couldn't even get to that point of exertion. So, you know, what's going on there? How do we engage with that? I have a recurring dream where I'm running and, the harder I try to run, or more specifically, the faster I try to run, I feel like I'm churning in concrete or sludge and just going nowhere. No matter how hard I try, I can't create any more speed. And it's always a relief to wake up from this dream and you know realize, well, at least I'm not actually that slow. <laughs> you know, as slow as I may be in real life, I'm not actually that bad but i think it says something about the unconscious and you know the way in which we you know sometimes wonder and you know so how can i solve this stuff i think you see so much about the idea that training and performance is about the application of willpower and i think the reason why that's so popular in part is because it's a really simple concept to understand just generate the momentum of mind and roll over the obstacles and you'll come out the other side and I, I can tell you, and I'll try to illustrate this later in the episode, that I have not had that experience play out <laughs> favorably for me. And I think that trying uh, hard is sometimes the anathema of success, but it's presented as a panacea. I think that when we think about speed and we think about speed work is a phrase that uh, at least is popular in running, but you know, people trying to do things that we think are going to improve our sprint. And if you're and if you're not a runner, if you've never did run the eight hundred of the mile, or I suppose you know the two mile, three thousand, you know, um, maybe the five thousand, the ten thousand. But if you haven't done that, you might not have encountered this kind of experience. And I think it could be true to other sports, but running is really what I associate this with the most. And you know, I'm sort of imagining that it extends to others. And I said, I don't know if it's true to others because a lot of the other endurance sports that I've, uh, you know, done and endurance stuff that I've done has been outside of that sort of social context of like you're in the team environment and you're on the competitive circuit and you're in that, um, you know, defined social space. And when you're doing this stuff on your own, one of the like positives and negatives is you're kind of liberated, you know, from that environment. But that concept of speed you know, is an ability to sprint is then sort of somehow translated into this issue of like, well, when the gun goes off, do I feel good, right? Do I feel smooth? 
do I feel relaxed versus again, that kind of like stumbling newborn feeling. And, you know, oftentimes in the first track meet of a track season, people will have that feeling of, I can't generate any capacity for movement. And it's very frustrating. And then a couple meets into the season, all of a sudden that switches and that pivots and people start to feel like a little bit more natural running. Um, and it might only last the first 30 to 45 seconds if you're in a race where your fitness level just isn't there. But that ability to sort of like actually feel competent and capable and like you've mastered that ability to move, um, it's something that a lot of people encounter. And I think people, we experience this in all of these other sports, but if we don't have that opportunity to, you know, be around other people, go to the same races with people as a team or a social group, then those conversations about that experience maybe change the way in which that's going to develop over time. So I think the origin of speed is something we should establish to some extent. And I think it has to do with the fascination um, with the race velocity and the sense that velocity is the limiter to performance, that it's literally that act of the velocity of the race that we need to engage with and overcome. And then that relates back to that essential frustration of, I cannot go faster. And it makes us feel like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I do this? You know, we look at a historical context, um, you know, there's instances of people considering whether or not you can really change somebody's so-called basic speed. So like, you know, Arthur Lydiard's take on that was that you can't really do much to change somebody's basic speed or some people might say you can't turn a donkey into a racehorse and uh, you can bring it out of them to some point. But there's a sense that, you know, beyond that baseline, there's not much you can do, you know. And so maybe that might be that you can take what somebody can do for 60 meters and then you can maybe get them to sort of extend that up to like 100, 150, maybe 200 meters. And then that's kind of going to be it. And obviously there has to be some truth to that. And you can say that about threshold too, though, right? Or, you know, basic endurance, like after a certain point, there's not much you can do about it. But I think the distinction would be that with stamina and endurance development, you know, i.e. threshold development, the gap between, you know, where you can start and where you can end up is huge. And, um, you know, at the same time, though, I think people have made the training for that so convoluted and, and counterproductive that maybe we've limited the sense of that. But people have often then turned um, to speed to say, well, this is a reflection of how fast you can actually go. And I think there is some truth to the notion that, you know, basic speed, you know, and you can't turn a donkey into a racehorse. I, I think that you're more likely to take, um, you know, a, a five minute miler in ninth grade and you know, over 15 years, you know, you're more likely to have that person turn into a sub 210 marathoner or a sub 50 minute, you know, 10 mile road racer than you are to take them and, you know, have them turn into a sub 350 miler or a sub 330, 1500 meter runner, you know, and that it seems to be true. And I don't know if it's because of a lack of you know, better data on what like the kind of the distribution of what we might term athletic ability or talent looks like in the general population, or if that's just sort of like, you know, that bias that, you know, speed is the scarcer 
ability and that, you know, there's quote unquote, lots of people who can grind it out, but, you know, not a lot of people who can float along. And, you know, I think that that again, though, the problem is that distinction again goes back to threshold. So there we see an initial problem is right. How do we separate speed as a construct of our aerobic conditioning and the way in which the given velocity of the race relates to our fitness versus the fitness of other people versus how do we relate um, that ability to perform in a race to our sort of maximum potentiation of dynamic, explosive movement. And Ledyard's line uh, in the sand for half miling, he said, was 22.5. I think Twenty, I think it was something like that. But said if you couldn't run under twenty two five, you should forget all about half miling because you just won't have the basic speed to excel in the half mile. And he said, you know, you should just forget it and move up to longer distances. And twenty two five is you know a pretty strong performance for two hundred meters. You know, and to be fair, you know, I think you know that probably is even more true now than it was then. You know, when you look at the world, how fast the world record and the 800 has become for, um, you know, men and women, you know, the ability to generate, you know, quality speed, you know, or quality speed, right? That's maybe not the best phrase, but, you know, outlier speed maybe is a better term, you know, over 20 to 25 seconds is definitely, you know, seems to be a limiting factor, you know, so does this apply to all endurance sports? Do we need a maximum, you know, not just strength, which strength would be, we can make a distinction and say strength is the ability to move against a huge resistance at any rate of work. But, um, you know, speed specifically would be the ability to move against resistance in a, you know, really, you can generate that resistance to the resistance quickly, instantaneously, or sort of close closer to, to instantaneous versus slowly grinding something. You imagine people putting weight on a sled, on, you know, a carpet in a gym. And, you know, if you can push that slowly down the length of the gym space or the hall or whatever, you know, area you're in, that would be strength, but that wouldn't be speed. And, you know, do we need a maximum speed concept um, as a limiter to target or think about or evaluate you know, how we can perform in racing and all endurance sports and how does speed function as a limiter? Is it one branch? Um, I think it is uh, one branch of kind of this holy trinity of endurance sports between um, endurance, stamina, and speed, I think is that kind of trinity there. And I would argue that anything longer than 45 seconds is endurance, maybe. So any in any sport discipline where you have to perform continuously for 45 seconds or longer, I would say qualifies in this umbrella of endurance. So that means that, you know, those three characteristics, um, you know, and then I hear I make a distinction of endurance as a capacity or a active um, fitness, right, versus endurance as the social definition of the category of sport. But those sports are 45 seconds or longer. It's going to be a combination of endurance, stamina and speed. And then, you know, another question to ask is, is speed more important than lactate threshold? I've really been trying to articulate on the podcast recently that I think that threshold is fitness. And I think that when people talk about threshold as it being as being this, you know, sort of 
component thing that you might like do some workouts at threshold, I think that that's uh, wrong. I think that threshold is fitness. So to, to ask the question, is speed more important than lactate threshold, I think is a pretty significant question to give consideration to because you'd be saying basically is speed more important than fitness you know and and then if you're asking the question like that it suggests that they're different and a part of what inspired this episode is a listener reached out um with an awesome question um and you know they were saying essentially i'm gonna paraphrase um but i'm gonna try to use take stick to the spirit of the question um you know what does top end speed training have to do and how does that fit into a training program and the context here they gave was a 1500 meter to like a 5k runner and you know should you be doing um pure speed development in addition to lactate threshold development and then they you know use the context of uh the phosphagen system or the ATP PCR system or the immediate energy system. And it would be, um, the like high intensity exercise. And, you know, if you quickly Google it, if you want to, what you'll see outside of you the trouble, you're going to see that, you know, exercise up to 10 seconds. And then, you know, the examples that come up are, you know, things like swinging a baseball bat or could be doing a squat any immediate uh, physical movement. And, you know, when you're, you're saying, right, it can be up to 10 seconds, so it's not just a singular contraction, but it can be a series of contractions. On uh, the bicycle, the road bike, I've always felt that basically at about 20 pedal strokes, I have more. if I'm going as maximum effort, I've more or less tied up and I'm starting to slow down. And I honestly feel that I really basically peak at five seconds and then I start to feel like I'm more so trying not to stop generating the power that I'm generating than I am trying to actually manage to increase that power. So it's an instantaneous thing. And I think this is why I say that I think this concept of speed applies off of all across all of these different endurance sports, but the way we think about um, is I think unique, right? And so then, you know, he gave the example which I think is an appropriate example of doing, you know, some 50 meter sprints, um, you know, with, you know, a few minutes of recovery, right. You know, what, how does that, you know, fit in, does it fit in? Um, and I really liked that question and I thought it was a good opportunity to use that to talk about speed in general. And so what we ended up discussing is that I think there's an abundance of evidence that, does suggest that you can improve the potentiation of speed that we might, you know, then say associate with, with ATP PCR, let's just call it immediate energy, uh, with immediate energy. Um, and if we consider, right, like people who sprint over very short distances, so, you know, the 60 meter dash at a high level is well under 10 seconds, right? Uh, in American football, you have you know, the uh, 40 yard dash, right? And so you know, people using something that's a very, very short uh, duration, you know, these are things that are used either as an actual form of competition or are seen as a, like with the 40 yard dash as a part of like evaluation of capacity or ability to perform in these particular given disciplines. However, I think that we can take, you know, 
pretty easily the understanding that there is an immediate uh, speed and you know explosive application of power, right? Again, making that distinction between strength and speed as being distinct, you know, if certainly very much related, um, and saying, well, if we look at the context of middle distance running, right? Well, what does it look like there? Because then obviously we're looking at a different kind of duration of performance. Um, but at the same time, you know, middle distance running feels very fast. You know, if you, I think one of the reasons um, why the marathon is popular is because ironically, it's more accessible, um, not just because you can line up 30,000 people and take $300 <laughs> from everybody to have them run one of these things. But it's just not the pace you have to run is just so slow that anybody can go out and sort of start running that pace excessively. Right. And then you can just kind of engage with this capacity for breakdown. But if you get up to the high level, right, Elliot Kipchoge running under 440 pace, you know, right, there's that's for a lot. And you see this stuff with these like treadmills at some of these marathons. And it's like run the world record pace. And you have people get on there and, you know, it's pretty rough. <laughs> you know, like people can't generate that speed at all. Or you'll see stuff with, you know, adults whom, and, you know, I don't think it's a reflection of them as a person. I think it's a, just a reflection of, you know, lifestyle. I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but, you know, they'll try to like, you know, run or sprint. And I think people are just kind of waddling. And, and there's no way that when they were a kid that that's how they moved when they ran. But at some point, something changes for us and, and we really that really starts to decline. And I think that suggests that, OK, so there is an act of how we choose to move must influence our capacity for speed. And, you know, I think on the one hand, right, we could say that's immediate energy, but I also think there's other things going on in terms of like uh, uh, synaptic potentiation and, you know, basically the nervous system and, you know, how we teach our body to communicate with itself when it's time to move. And if we don't do certain movements, then we decline in our ability to create those movements. So the value then of allocating training time to the immediate energy system, um, I think we want to broaden, number one, broaden that consideration. Say what does speed really mean for endurance athletes, whether it's a middle distance runner or somebody else, but also ask the question of, you know, what's the relationship between speed for an endurance athlete and the ability to actually like increase the capacity of that system to do work because one of the concepts of training the uh, ATP PCR system, the immediate energy system, would be that we need that they that energy system isn't capable of doing what we need it to do, and then we need to stimulate that and get that to adapt. And that would make sense if you're trying to uh, make a standard for a 40 yard dash or qualify for the final at a track meet in the 60 meters, right? And then there's you know swimming events and you know. Uh, track cycling where it's very short distance, right? But, you know, what does that really mean? Does that really hold true as you move up into races of, you know, even the 800 and longer of like two minutes and longer? What does that mean? So I think if we look at this as kind of the case study perspective of middle distance runner, I think the middle distance runner is thinking about speed in the context of three different things. A, what's my potential max acceleration at the end of the race? B, what is my max speed over 200 or 400 meters? And is that limiting my maximum race velocity? 
you know, i.e., how can I run a sub four minute mile if I can't run the 400 in under 60? I mean, you can't, right? You, we know that you can't literally go as fast as you are capable of going. Uh, you can't extend that, right? You're, it's only going to be a fractional utilization up to some point. And if I had the resources, the wherewithal, one of the things that I would like to, you know, study or investigate is, you know, um, looking at people's um, max capacity over 100 meters and looking what they can do at, you know, say over a 1500 or a mile and say, you know, how much seems to be, is what's the kind of variation in terms of the percentage of maximum velocity that people can get to over a distance of a mile. And you could look at that and over, over different events. And I think that might give you some interesting insights into the prevalence of speed. And the third thing, C, I guess, item C, um, is that asking this question of, can I feel sufficiently smooth running target race pace to maintain that tempo for the whole distance? Do I need speed to do this? You know, my uh, brother is, one of his goals right now is to try to get to a 10K in under um, five minute pace, which I think is a pretty realistic goal because he's run half marathon in um, 507, right? So pull it back to, you know, a little more than half of the distance less. Sorry, I'm saying that inside out, right? A little less than half of the distance um, to run a 10K versus a half marathon and to take off eight seconds a mile. You'd think that seems pretty reasonable. But as you get down to five minutes, I think for a lot of runners, that's where you start thinking about running our five minute pace, that's where people started to get concerned about speed. And it's this sense of like, well, what if I go out there and I feel like I'm flailing trying to run 455 pace? And, you know, one of the things that he experimented with over the summer was trying to do a bunch of workouts at five minute pace before beach uh, to beacon 10K. And he had run like 3140 or something there, you know, last year. And that's always a pretty tough race because the weather is usually pretty rough. Uh, for doing that, you know, kind of racing. And, you know, he this year he tried to do this five-minute pace stuff, and, you know, I, I guess it was sort of an experiment for him that he felt he needed to try, and I don't really... It doesn't seem like he really was satisfied with that. He, I think he kind of got out there, and he sort of sank down to 520 pace, and we had done a lactate threshold test with him a week or two ago, and uh, his actually self-selected threshold intensity, which was a little bit too high, um, you know, but was 520 pace. And, you know, the lactate on that was still pretty low. Um, you know, it was three something or whatever. So, you know, he should not at the level where he should be struggling to, he should be able to do that pretty smoothly for an hour and then, you know, start to get tired, which makes sense in the context of his half marathoning, right? You know, but you would look at that and say, well, right, that idea, mentally we start to perceive my five-minute pace is a symbol uh, in running if you're not tuned into running. But I think, you know, the hardcore runners know that five-minute pace is this holy grail for, you know, long-distance running. But does that really mean that speed is a limiter there, or is that just a socially constructed expectation, right, that when the, you know, first digit in your pace per mile drops from five to four, we suddenly see, like, something magic has happened. But really... I don't think that that's relevant. We should really be thinking about how does a uh, ambition pace relate to our current fitness, you know, fitness being our threshold. And, you know, although Arthur Lydiard said that, um, you know, 22.5 was the cutoff, he also said that, 
you know, Peter Snell was, as far as they could tell, the slowest runner over 200 meters in his um, Olympic finals. But, you know, he was pretty dominant winning those two Olympic half miles and the 1500 in this in the 64 Tokyo Olympics, I think. So what does that suggest? That Well, it suggests that, you know, as much as speed is there and it's an absolute ceiling on how fast we can go, right? You can't run faster than you can run. You can't ride faster than you can ride. I think that in some sense, pure speed or basic speed is kind of overrated for middle distance runners. And I think we can try to prove this point. And I think that this applies, I think that this applies um, outward to longer duration events. But I also want to argue that I think speed is really important. And so then I'm going to make a distinction between speed as a function of this immediate energy system. We need to stimulate this PCR system versus speed as this sort of neurological capacity for movement. And that most of us, I think, can generate the speed that we need to achieve our athletic goals if we think of it more like dancing than we do like explosive strength training. And I think that uh, speed feels like our limiter, ironically, first of all, because of a poor approach to our aerobic training that leaves people with constantly tired legs from doing too many so-called anaerobic threshold. And now we code these as LT2 threshold type workouts so that, um, you know, basically going X percent above actual threshold for no good reason apart from the fact that that's what somebody told us to do and that's what somebody told them to do and just to game i mean a lot of running and endurance training and is a game of telephone you know people hear something and then they say oh okay and then they say well that person's legit and so i'm going to do that and that's human behavior unfortunately a lot of marketing is based on that idea too obviously so like there's precedent for exploiting this you know aspect in the way our, our brain works and processing information um, additionally, I would say the race pace style workouts when people are going at race intensity are usually done with too many reps. They're done too frequently and they're done too often in general. Most 1500 meter runners would get more out of just doing three by 300 at race pace with at least five minutes of rest, if not eight, maybe, or even 10 than they do out of the eight to 10 by 400s with a minute rest. Because then we also have this idea that these workouts are generating the fitness and and they're not and this is where you have to understand all of these components at the same time for it to make sense and we've got a bunch of stuff on on threshold and you can send us a message on our instagram page at black cats run if you have questions and you want to talk about it happy to talk i always i answer whatever questions i get i answer and if it's a great question then i, I might do what i've done recently and you know turn it into an episode or two so what we want to be thinking about is that speed is something that we're practicing and practice should always be done with proficiency. And we see this as a general rule of how we get better at things, like how to practice to get good at just about anything. There's actually even a great uh, Ted Ed video with a with a title very similar to that that I'd recommend everybody check out. But it's practicing and we know that the more we're willing to practice, the better we'll probably get, but that it's always practicing within proficiency. Um, we've talked about um, zones of proximal development and how like sport and exercise performance is, you know, something that we learn in a sense as much as we train. You know, adaptation is really, when you think about it, it's the body learning, 
you know, what it needs in order to be successful within the environment that it's been placed in. Um, but when we're looking for the outer bounds of our physical capacity in our training, um, you know, that's bad enough. And then oftentimes we're like, find that point and go beyond the failure point. And again, you talk about games of, you know, telephone, <laughs> you know, word of mouth. When somebody like Jim Ryan said that he didn't think the workout started until, you know, they were getting, they got tired. I mean, that comment, you know, has a big impact. You know, people hear that. And as they're trying to like, you know, pan for gold and all of the stuff out there, it's like, well, Jim Ryan was a freak, you know, in a good way as an athlete, uh, he was a freak. So like, if he's saying it, it must be, it must be good. But, um, you know, not again to the whole Jim Ryan thing, but, you know, at the end of the day, like given how good he was, Jim Ryan probably um, should have had a little bit more success at the international level than he did. And, you know, maybe his idea of, you know, go to failure and then keep going isn't really ideal. And you see that in the book Once a Runner, which is a really fun book to read. But, you know, it's and it's really an interesting, you know, cultural artifact of of how people have thought about this stuff that it's about the transformative super workout. Um, I don't know if I'd read it again now, if I'd enjoy it as much, but I think if you're at that point in your life or you're, you know, a scholastic runner, I think it, it really speaks to that, that ethos and, and it captures that, but it also captures the kind of idiocy <laughs> in terms of how people have thought about this stuff. And so like, is there value though in doing, you know, the example of 50 meter reps? I think there, there is value, but I think there's, more value if you run them as fast as you can run without negatively affecting the rest of your running. Whereas most people would just say the only way to get this benefit is I need to think about this immediate energy system and I have to max out in order to stimulate that system. And if it fatigues you, right, only so much that um, you can feel comfortable and I'm saying this inside out again, if it fatigues you, so you can't feel comfortable in subsequent training, then it's not worth the trade-off. So that's you know one basic thing is that if we lose our ability to develop aerobically um, because we're working on this other energy system and we're taking this energy system thought process, and I, I think this is an example of why the energy system stuff is very chaotic. Plus, we know that we're using these energy systems at the same time, anyway. So this like anxiety of well, I guess I I'm, I suck because I'm not training. This energy system, you know, it's probably that you suck because, and I say this as somebody who has sucked out more often than not. So this is not a shame uh, thing. This is I'm empathizing. <laughs> I've had this, and I'm going to show later in the podcast examples of me, you know, you know, sucking out big time in some of these um, events um, in, in, in my racing seasons. And you learn from that, right? You learn from failure, assuming that you persevere, but it can take a while. And, um, you know, when you look at this trade-off concept, right, if you're working on this one thing to, okay, how can I get better at 10 seconds? Well, you're really a sprinter, right? And there's, and if you could really develop your speed and then also, you know, you want to do all this other aerobic conditioning activity, then, you know, sprinters wouldn't train the way that they train. So I think you can further prove, though, that it's probably not worth thinking about, you know, this, um, phosphagen system by just doing the following test. So I think if you, and anybody can do this, 
And I think honestly, even if you're not um, a runner per se, you could also use this as a really simple way to try to get a sense of like, well, am I actually strong? Am I actually strong enough to create speed? Because I think, you know, if you need to trade the immediate energy system, it basically must be because you're weak. Um, you know, the other argument would be that, well, if you do this, it's going to unlock this level of performance, but you know, that's not true. Sprinters can't run distance events, but you know, a great middle distance runner can usually can, as we've discussed, can, you know, run a pretty good 200. They're not going to be at the elite level, but you know, that's not their bag, Um, but they're going to be way closer to an elite level at the 200 than an elite 200 meter runner is going to be in the 800 of the mile. So if you, you warm up and then maybe do a couple uh, 30 to 40 um, meter accelerations and then run 100 meters as fast as you can, how did you do? I, I did I did this like um, a couple weeks ago, uh, maybe six weeks ago. I don't know. I think in August, maybe not six weeks ago. doesn't matter. I did this a little while ago, you know, because I often still wonder, well, man, you know, do I not have enough speed? Because it gets in your head, um, you know, and is the problem that, you know, my peak velocity is so low or, oh, man, I need to be working on this. So I did this. I, I jogged around. I did a couple strides and then I did a 100 meter uh, time trial on 12.7 seconds. And that's not special per se. But, you know, when we think about the concept of how much is good enough to be speed. Well, that's fast enough to run 323 for the mile. <laughs> so for my purposes, do I have enough speed? The answer seems to be yes. And I, I know uh, from doing that and from my experience with endurance sports and, and you know racing sports that I can go a lot better because as I was doing it, I felt like I was sort of tripping over myself and it felt like I wasn't really getting all of the power out and you know I could feel my quads were sore and, you know, so the point is that's 12.7 and the reality is it could probably be 12.3 or something like that. Um, so I already have enough speed to break the world record. So follow along as I become the first person to run under 325 for the mile. <laughs> so, but that actually proves the point though, right? Is that, you know, I think we have enough speed and is, so is the PCR system, is the, is there a potentiation issue there? And so I would generally say no. Um unless you really are struggling to create speed, then maybe you do have an issue there. I would say, um, for example, I talked about adults who, you know, have a lifestyle that isn't really compatible with being athletic and athletically active. And that's a choice and it's okay to make those choices. Um, I think that people would probably generally feel better and, and be healthier if they chose to be athletic, but, you know, nobody has to be an athlete. It's not like a class system where you have the, you know, the uh, accepted and, and, the, the out, outcasts. Um, but I think what we should be asking isn't if you need to work on immediate energy system and say, well, what training targets that? I think we should be asking, how do I use a higher fraction of my max velocity in my racing? So if I were specifically thinking about 1500 meter, 3000 meter, 5000 meter racing, I would want to raise my threshold as much as possible. And, you know, then for speed development, I'd only want to run within my zone of proximal development. So I need to be proficient. So instead of trying to train toward overload for some hypothetical um, ATP PCR system benefit, I would want to try to improve my feeling of coordination and efficiency at my max velocity. So for me with that 12.7, I would want to say, okay, how can I get to where I can run 12.7 and not feel like I'm about to fall forward 
you know, into a cartwheel, but where I can do that with fluidity and competence and feel like I'm actually in control of my body. And I also think that you do that. And then the, the, the speed will also tend to increase a little bit too, because you're going to be more effective at applying the strength that you have. And, you know, if I were thinking specifically about the 1500, 3000, 5000 meter, even the 800, I would still want to raise my threshold as much as possible. One of the, um, you know, issues I had coaching, uh, track when I was an assistant track coach, um, you know, was that, you know, I was the assistant coach and I, you know, was working with the distance runners cause I had also coached cross country, but you know, in track, I wasn't sort of the decision maker all the time. Right. And, you know, I think that there was a definitely a philosophical or an ideological schism around the role of high intensity. And I really kind of skewed towards, I want these guys to be doing threshold workouts, doing aerobic workouts, and then doing for a quote unquote faster running or speed. I wanted them doing very short, you know, repetitions where they're running fast, but they're not burying themselves, you know, and, and I'm relating to my experience um, as a runner as like, that doesn't work for people. And, you know, there was a, a tension because I think, you know, other coach thought that, you know, we should, we should be doing some more of this, I guess we could say traditional kind of stuff. And, you know, so if I'm trying to develop my fluency of movement, maybe we can say, you know, I would do 40 to 80 meter fast runs, uh, but only do them as fast as I can run smoothly and not feel like my eyeballs are popping out of my skull, if you relate to that feeling. But whereas, you know, for the other coach, I think the, the, the strategy that they preferred was to really go to failure, right? Is this if you need to max out and then that is what's going to make it easier. And, you know, you do, you know, more reps than you need to, you know, I think doing four to 80 meter fast runs would be sufficient. One thing, a practice I used to have was at the end of our, you know, easy aerobic runs, I would have people do, um, six times 150 meter strides and I called them floats. And I really tried to emphasize that. And I wasn't trying to be cute because I was really trying to use language specifically. And I was saying, when we run, we need to be floating. And I think that was, I still agree with that. And I think they should be called floats and not strides. Um, but I would cut those by d- distance. I would basically cut those in half now. Um, I would have them only be running like max 75, 80 meters. And, you know, maybe doing, you know, 40, 40, 80, and then doing 40, 40, 80. And I think, you know, that would be that would be something I would change and I think would make a big difference. And then I think if there's this concern about like, well, I'm not really like recruiting muscles or you're feeling really uncoordinated, then I think on a case by case basis, maybe say, well, do you do a little jump rope? Um, do you do some deep squats with a very modest amount of weight? Do you do some um, two leg standing vertical jumps and you, maybe you would do that once a week, but you, if you want to try that and you know, that's another thing easy to experiment with, you'll get pretty sore from doing that just once. Um, it's, it's not, it's not, it seems so trivial, but I think it proves the point that it doesn't take much to when you're working at that level of, um, force or that we maybe want to think about in terms of Watts when you're producing that many Watts, it doesn't take that much to, to induce fatigue. Although CrossFit makes us think otherwise, but a lot of those people are on drugs. Um, you know, I would say much like playing an instrument, you know, and this is what I mean by the floating concept. I think you want to be 
to run fast, to ride fast, to swim fast. And you want to be do feel like you're doing that beautifully and, you know, feel like you're developing through practice, a very automatic and natural feel for accessing the speed that you already have. And a part of this goes to coaching as a coach. I would adapt these things based on the responses the athlete was getting in training. You got to see what it looks like. Uh, and that's the limitations of listening to a podcast is you can take these ideas and translate them, and but it's, it's going to be limited to your interpretation. And I think we're all taking away a different understanding of this. Um, you know, that's why I encourage people to, you know, I had to make the Instagram page. You know, I don't, you know, obviously I don't have a ton of people following that if you've ever gone over to look at it. Um, if you want to follow it, that's great. But I, I really wanted to just have a medium to, you know, post some visuals and to give people a space to communicate and ask questions if, if they had questions or curiosities about this stuff. And the last question that I would, I would think about is what's your current best time in you know the race that you're trying to run? And, you know, is your absolute peak velocity really acting as a ceiling? So if we go back to the idea of that experiment, you know, if we ran that experiment, I think what we would see, um, we would see that, you know, there's probably a certain point of percentage utilization of max velocity for any given race distance. And from that, you could probably infer or model um, based on your peak velocity, if that's something you really need to work on. So, you know, for better or for worse, part of what makes a great middle distance runner, for example, is they can run at least 25.x for 200 meters, you know, while doing their, you know, aerobic training. Um, because to truly develop, if you want to take that energy system model, to really truly develop that, you got to train like a 60 meter sprinter, right? That's the far more optimal uh, strategy to work on that. You know, I don't, I'm not an expert on how sprinters think about their training per se, but you know, that's certainly going to be more optimal compared to running, you know, or, or swimming or riding or whatever, you know, one to three hours a day, you know, in some cases, you know, four or five hours a day in other sports um, outside of, you know, running. But in other words, right, basically you could improve this energy system and you actually get slower. So then you have the irony of the speed thing is actually going to make you slower. So what's the point? And I think somebody could try now, I would say somebody could try first just focusing on that that approach of like, let me get my pure speed until I can run the 200 in uh, 25 seconds. And then can they maintain that using sort of fluency training of let me just maintain my sort of uh, nervous system familiarity with accessing that tempo? And, you know, would that allow me to, you know, maintain that speed, keep that ability to access that in place and then while developing aerobically? And you'd have to try that in practice to see if that would work. I'm sure some people could do it. Some people couldn't. It probably would depend on you know, how much practice you need, um, to get good at it. But I think a skill learned, um, is once learned is slowly forgotten. And if you think of speed as a skill, um, you know, like playing an instrument, then, you know, I think that once you get pretty good at an instrument, as long as you play it periodically, um, you don't really lose that skill. It takes a long time to forget how to play an instrument. You know, you can go decades and pick it up and still be able to play. And then I think, your skill will probably come back pretty quickly. So that aspect of the lear- what we're learning 
you know, this thing that's not quite this, you know, fitness or have we, you know, fully stimulated the capacity of the energy system, I think is sort of a, a um, distinction that's worth making. But certainly a big part of those glorious finishing kicks that are so exciting to watch is the consequence of people just not being that tired. <laughs> and if you're not that tired when you get to the last 30 seconds or if it's a long distance race, your ability to put the hammer down in the last five or 10 minutes, um, you know, that's probably not a result of a superior high intensity energy system. That's a result of the fact that you're not tired because of a superior aerobic capacity. So more specifically, how would we maybe try to approach this? What could this look like? So let's walk through uh, a scenario here. And this is the scenario I used um, in uh, the discussion I had uh, with the listener. And um, I think that everybody could apply this on their own, if you, even if you're just curious and you just want to sort of test it out. But, you know, so they went on to ask, um, well, you know, how would you incorporate this into training, right? If you're trying to do like focusing on aerobic training, like how should you approach this? Um, and then also how do you access um, the sort of like quote unquote top end uh, intensity or capacity that you might get through racing if you don't have uh, access to a regular um, schedule of those kinds of races. So I think where you would start is you would want to start by testing to see where you're at. And you can do this, you can translate this to swimming, you know, in the pool for 25 yards or 25 meters. You could do a, you know, 10 second sprint on the bike, um, whatever, right? You can look for the analogy, but we'll talk about this in, in terms of the run of the running still, because that was the scope of our conversation. So time trial, hundred meter dash, see how fast your speed really is. Then look at how quickly, um, that would be in theory, if you could hold that for 400 meters. So, you know, and if you felt like your 100-meter split could be better, take a rest day or take rest until uh, you're not sore anymore and then give it another attempt to, to see because that could certainly be true. You might find you just come back another time. You might go, depending on where you started, you might go a second or two faster even. So I would say if your 100-meter time is under 14 seconds, then you have enough basic speed to run. And we use the example of 440 in a mile. You have enough basic speed to run under 440 in a mile. And if your time is over 14 seconds, then leg speed might be a bit of a limiter. So that means then there's two pathways, right? What do you do if you're fast enough? And then what do you do if you're not fast enough? So let's start with if you're not fast enough, okay? So if you're not fast enough, I think what you would want to do um, is the following. Once a week, three sets of two by 60 meter sprints taking at least two minutes between reps longer, you know, I mean, I think to let, if the issue is the energy system, then, you know, it takes a while apparently for that to reset, you know, um, you know, but walk for at least 400 meters, um, before between sets too. Um, you're only doing three sets of two by 60 meters. It could be a little less than 60 meters. If you want, it could be two sets. And I do think you want to like jog around for 10 minutes you know, do some easy floats for, you know, you know, sort of little relaxed accelerations. Otherwise your body will just feel cranky. It's not like, oh, you're not going to get the whatever. It's just, it's just not going to feel right. You know, when you go to exercise and you're going to kind of waste your time because you're not actually going to be able to to run them properly because you're just 
not going to be activated to moving like that. I don't think warming up is as complicated as people make it out to be, but you know, there's certainly benefit to getting activated. Um, and then I would say in this instance, again, this is the slower than 14 seconds result. I would say once a week do maybe 10 squats with a very modest weight, and you're just working on standing up as quickly as you can from, you know, the bottom of your squat depth, you know, and then I would do the same thing, you know, using a hex bar deadlift. If you're really good at doing traditional deadlifts, you could, you could do it like that. The hex bar deadlift is, you know, better, you're more likely to get, you know, the form and we're not training to do specific lifts competitively. We just want the strength benefit. And then I would say between the squat and the deadlift, you could do 20 to 30 jump rope jumps, or I think it would maybe would be better to do uh, just 10 standing two-legged vertical standing jump. And um, you could do this as one set. So you could go squat, jump, deadlift, jump. And I would just do one. And then if you don't get sore afterwards, um, the next time you could try two sets, maybe three sets. And I would say the day after you do this, you need to take a total rest day. So this goes back to that idea of just um, working on this uh, strength before even worrying about your aerobic conditioning. And if you're out of shape, you know, then maybe it would be cool to try this out, you know, and for a month before you get into your aerobic training program and, and see if you can then maintain that, you know, and see what that leads to different results or not than you've had in the past. So then I would say, you know, in this phase, though, you know, once a week you could do an LT session, and that really would totally depend on your fitness level. But if you've been training and now you want to switch to do this because you've done their, your sprint test and you're like, oh, my God, I'm slow as a bag of beans, then, you you know, you could probably do something like maybe eight times a thousand meters or, you know, eight times four minutes with like a one minute jog recovery. It could be a five minute jog recovery. It doesn't really matter. You know, warm up or cool down for like 10 minutes. And then, you know, the rest of the week, I would say you either do like short runs of 30 to 45 minutes or just take the day off. And, you know, but basically to work on this, you got to recognize that if you've been doing a lot of aerobic activity that you got to now reduce that or else this isn't going to be functional for you. It's not, I mean, it's not going to be effective because if you're just accumulating fatigue, uh, general fatigue from, you know, your volume of aerobic activity, then you're not going to get the benefit from doing, benefit from doing this stuff. This is why people do CrossFit suck at running. Um, I know what they do in the CrossFit games now is they make these endurance events and they make them like belligerently shorter. And then they claim, oh, yeah, these guys are running 1610 for 5,000 meters. Okay, give me a break. You basically cut the course <laughs> by two minutes. You know, that I mean, the amount of di- whatever, right? Who cares? CrossFit's their own bag. Um, but I would say, you know, in, in the third week of this, do another 100 meters time trial. And if you can't break 14 seconds, then, you know, keep progressing. Um, with this cycle for, and then every third week do a time trial, you know, I mean, I suppose if you're timing your 60 meter sprints and you're like, wow, I'm crushing these now. And you know, you want to, and you're like, I can just do that. No problem. Go out, do it, verify it, move on. And then, you know, when you've done this, I think that like you get into this issue of, well, and this is the, so that's one concept of speed, right? Developing the actual capacity to move like that. But what does it mean if you actually have the speed? So here we have the runner, right, trying to run under 440 in the mile, which is a great mile time. Um, you know, obviously, yeah, sure, the, you know, the Olympics were, 
you know, guys are able to, able to run under 350 for the mile. I mean, I know they're racing the 1500, right? But you know, so those, some of those guys can run under 330. But in general, you know, I think even among just sort of like, uh, you know, endurance long distance endurance athletes who have running as their discipline or one of their disciplines, I think running under 440 and the miles isn't as common as you'd think it is. So I think if you want to do this, a couple different sessions you'd want to focus on, I'd say one session a week, you can work on accessing race pace. So if you want to run 440 pace, then you're trying to access 80, 68 to 70s for 400. So I would do the following session. I would do hundred meters at goal pace jog 300, 150 meters at that goal pace, jog 300, 100 meters at goal pace. Rest five minutes, and then you can do another set. Now, the goal here isn't to make the muscles tired. So all those traditionalists, the indoctrinated, are going to dismiss this out of hand because it's not eight times 400, or the rest is too long, the reps aren't enough, and you need to go X faster than when you're trying to race. That's wrong. I am telling you that is wrong. It does not work. And I'm going to prove that to you from my own experience. And I think a lot of people know the truth to this, but we, most of us are getting screwed by the training that's assigned to us. And then we just learn that we suck at sports and we, you know, we, we suck lemons and, um, you know, it's pretty demeaning. It's not a fun experience to, to have that be the explanation for what's going on. Cause it's not that, Oh, there's a different strategy. It's just, no, you're just not good enough. Oh, well, as demoralizing to say the least. Um, you know, I think for some of us, you know, we just quit and we say, frigget, I'm not doing this stuff anymore. I think that's a horrible outcome. And, you know, so we get drowned out by the sort of the powerful people, uh, the people of, you know, influence and status within the culture of these sports, the performers, and they're the only voices that are allowed to be articulated. And that's why I love these questions because it's giving people a chance to get their questions out there and then to think about those. And I like doing, I really enjoyed the questions that I've gotten recently and doing some podcasting specifically in response to those questions, because like, those are the questions that matter. I, at the end of the day, I think people who do really well and are fast, I think that's cool. But, um, like, I don't think they're the experience that is really worth interrogating. So the point is, yes, people will tell you this is a bad session and I can't make anybody do it, but uh, for the black cats, for my athletes, like this is the kind of stuff that, that we want to do and we want to be focusing on. And, you know, our evidence says it's effective. Um, and so the rule here would be that we just want, we've already proved that we already have enough speed, right, in the 100 meter time trial. So we're not using this to get stronger at sprinting or something like that. So we don't continue to do sets if your legs start to feel tired. What we want to do this is improve our ability to feel mechanically comfortable with a pattern of movement, much like an excellent dancer, you know, has to build their fluidity of movement with a given piece of choreography. That's what you want to achieve here. And muscular fatigue is going to be the enemy of that process. So that's one session. Second session, this is, would be a different session, um, would be more fitness oriented. Uh, I would, you know, do 200s at a fast, but still relaxed exertion. And it's not important to run at goal pace at all. We already did that. So the purpose of this basically should be slower. So for the 440 miler, the sub 440 miler, these 200s might be 40 to 44 per rep and jog like a 200 in between. And if you might find that you can run faster after a few reps, and that's fine to increase the speed as long as it feels natural. But if you start getting to the point where you're really 
feel like you're straining and you're, you're driving, um, and you're not, instead of running with fluidity and competence, then you're not doing what you want to be doing. And I'd say you could do like two to four sets of maybe five reps, you know, and then jog a half mile between sets. I think the more advanced version of this would be to just do 20 by 200. Um, then when I coach cross country, this is something we would do. And uh, if it was hot, we'd take a break after 10 reps and drink water or whatever. And, um, pour water on our head and we do another 10 reps, but we might start out, they might start out 42, 44s, and they might end up running with, you know, 31s by the end, because you'd be, when you do this and you're doing it the right way, that's what happens. You just feel better and better. Um, I used to run the workouts with them, you know, and I, and it was awesome feeling. And then I realized it was kind of my responsibility to pay attention to the athletes and the other groups (laughs) and make sure everybody was training correctly. So I backed off of doing that. So, and then third session, once a week, I, then you want to do LT reps. Uh, you know, maybe it's 80 minutes, six by to eight by 800 at LT separated by like maybe four minutes of jogging. And you could alternate um, every other week between the, that an LT session like that. And then maybe a longer run of, of 90 to 100 minutes. And I really like uh, Klaus Locke's uh, recommendation from his book, Easy Interval Training, that when you do longer steady state runs, like don't just drone along, like, you know, do some pickups that get up to LT, shake it up. And, you know, I would say, you know, do maybe 10, 30 second to one minute where you just sort of get up to LT, just float, and then, you know, go back down your regular long run pace. And I think if you do the above, uh, I think you'd want to follow that pattern um, for three to four weeks before looking to make an attempt at a four, four or sub four minute mile. And I think on the days when you're not doing those sessions, if you're tired, you know, go short, take a rest day. Um, if you feel good, go out and, you know, run comfortably in a five-zone model, we might say in zone two, you know, for like an hour or something like that. Um, and, you know, for the above, if you develop this above routine I've described, um, if you develop muscular fatigue, these sessions are not going to work, period. Okay, the muscular fatigue means you will only be able to produce a fraction of the total power you're actually capable of. And with any distance, that's a problem, whether it's the mile or an Ironman. So I would also say that the idea of like top end, right? So how do you access that uh, capacity? Or sometimes this is one where people say, well, that's like your anaerobic capacity and you got to repair that so you can get out there and really mix it up in these middle distance races, blah, 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 you know, BS, 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 the BS meter light is going off in the recording studio right now. So if you don't have that schedule, I think you can just go to a track or a flat surface somewhere and just try to run as fast as you can for any distance of 600 to 1,000 meters. And if you're feeling motivated, then walk for 30 minutes, sit down for some of it, drink some water, and then uh, run as fast as you can for like 400 meters. And if you did that uh, one day a week um, for two or three weeks, and I would, if you're going to add that to your schedule, I would do that in place of the LT session. Um or the long run, or you could also do it in place of the, the 200s and keep in the LT session, or you could alternate. One week you could do it and swap out the LT session slash long run. The other week you could swap it out for the 200s. Um, but I think you'd want to go easy at least two days before that, and you'll probably take a rest day, do an easy run, and then do these time trials. And I think it's important to have these be no longer than a thousand meters because then you have a chance to maybe try to like actually get into that, you know, race tempo, right? So hopefully 
um, you know, you can, you know, see very quickly that, you know, you're doing it right. You know, maybe you start out with 600 and once you can run 600 and 68s competently, then you go up to 800 and a thousand and, um, you know, and then you come back and the 400, I mean, I thought it worked really well for our track guys. I would put every single distance guy in a four by four. So we'd have like four or five, four by four relays. I made the four by four. I thought more interesting anyway, because everybody had to do it instead of being this thing that only a couple of people did and everybody wanted to get out of. But, you know, I think that running that helped a lot. Um, you know, that is helpful, but it's just, that's just one rep. You know, it's not doing a whole bunch of 400s. Just go hard for a 400 and then you're done. You go home, we don't cool down, that's it. You're literally done. Um, but I don't, you wouldn't progress to these time trials until you could break 14 for 100 meters. And second, um, you know, I, I would have done, so you need to first meet that standard. And then second, I would have wanted to have done, do at least three weeks of that routine, this faster than 400 meters faster than 14 seconds for a hundred meters routine um, before you start doing these time trials. And if you did these time trials then uh, for longer than a month, um, so if you go for three or four weeks, let's say doing a 600 to 1,000 time trial uh, once a week, then I would say you know, you want to then progress that time trial in the 1200. And basically once you can run 1200 and 330, and if you finish and you feel strong and you feel like I've got something in the tank, you're probably ready to go out and run 435 to 440. And uh, it might also be fine to go out and just time trial the one mile if you want to. But the advantage of the shorter distances is you get to, um, you know, practice that tempo and you're not burning yourself out mentally by hitting your head against the wall on, on that goal of uh, 440 because it doesn't feel good psychologically to want to achieve something and then feel like we're getting screwed. So if you're able to do these speed sessions above and you do all of this stuff and you still can't run under 440, well, then it's probably time to shift focus and try to instead make a measurable jump in your lactate threshold. And then, and then after you've done that, um, you know, you want to circle back to these speed sessions. And I've demonstrated another content and I posted a short uh, eight or nine minute YouTube video about this too, that like you can probably make the lactate threshold development that you need in like a month. If you do it the right way, you can probably get a 30 second increase in your lactate threshold and then you can come back to this, this speed stuff. So you could, um, if you wanted, set a goal faster than 14 seconds uh, for 100 meters but I think that, you know, sub 14 is sub 55 for the quarter mile. And even that's faster than world record pace. <laughs> That'd be a 340 mile. So if you can run under 14, it should be sufficient for a 440 mile. And I think we want to remember that speed isn't about intensity. It's about practice. It's about proximal development. It's about coordination. It's about beautiful movement. You know, there's a lot of metaphor to, to art. Not art is in this abstract thing that we don't understand, but art is in something that's done when we're in the zone, when we're experiencing a state of flow, not when we're um, putting the level of challenge in excess of our skill, because that's really what we want. We want to run fast and experience that flow state. Um, and you can't force yourself into a flow state. You just have to say, what's my skill? 
What's my challenge? And if you work in that state, that's the state at which improvement happens. You will expand um, what you can do for a challenge because that's the state in which your skill is going to improve. And partly that is because that's what you will enjoy. It's more enjoyable to be in flow. You're going to want to go and do a workout. Well, I get to do this workout and really feel like I'm good at running. You know, even if I'm not doing impressive times, I feel competent. Um, and remember also that speed is not the same as strength development. So if we think about this, is speed really a limiter then? Does speed limit performance? And if so, in what way? So I think one conclusion we can reach from this, this sort of case study uh, is that speed has to limit performance because otherwise we'd all be moving at the speed of light. And frankly, even the speed of light is, its own, is a limiter, has its own limiter. But if you look at this concept of, of speed and what does this look like over time? So the first, let's think about some world record history. So um, for men, the first world record in the 400 is from 1900 uh, for 440 yards. Maxi Long was 47.9. The first 800 meter world record is from 1912. Um, Ted Meredith, and that was a 151.9. And the first one mile world record and the IAAF era was 414.4 by John Paul Jones in 1913. So can we reach any conclusions from that? Um, is speed a limiter? So again, yeah, but not in the way that we think, because turning strength into speed isn't the issue. Um, people have been running fast enough over 400 meters to run it, to be able to, you know, run a sub four minute mile all along. I, I tend to think if you can break 50 for the 400, and you can't get to the point where you can run a sub four minute mile. There's pro you probably got an issue. Um, something's wrong. Um, I don't think you need to even be able to break fifty per se to break four minutes in the mile. You might not ever be a machine, and if you're if you can't break fifty, and uh, you run that first of all, fifty's fast as hell. If you haven't. You know, if you, don't, if you don't know runners or people who've done that or seen people do that, it might not sound impressive compared to what people do internationally for the quarter mile. But like running a 50 second 400 is freaking flying. OK, that's fast. Um, but the issue here, right, that's not as turning strength into speed issue. Right. It's a fluency of movement at our peak strength. And people have always had enough speed to run the sub four minute mile that that hasn't change the issue there was the training so speed's a limiter but it's a not a, it's not enough of a limiter to actually limit the performance right the performance issue is usually an, an aerobic issue and that's where you know I think that you know basically you can do a little bit of practice and you can probably you know get to that sub 440 and then at a certain point you're going to kind of hit a plateau and if you're because if your threshold stops really developing because you're focusing on these other things, you're only going to be able to get so much faster than, than your threshold, right? At the end of the day, there's going to be a ceiling to that. And you could also do an experiment that you could look at people's thresholds, look at their mile time, and you can say, okay, is there a limit, a uh, common limit to how much faster than threshold people can run for the mile? And there's going to be variance, but it's not going to be infinitely faster. There's going to be some sort of a ceiling to that. And you could look at individuals, you know, what matters there. Does their max speed, does that, if somebody has a greater 100-meter time or 400-meter time, is that going to have variance and impact on that? So in endurance sport in general, what does this mean? I think it's really hard to separate fluency of movement with speed from aerobic capacity. 
it's clear that staying under the aerobic capacity is just very, very efficient. And that's always going to be the best adaptive strategy. And, you know, I think that if you're at some point in your life, you know, even these incredible um, people who are performing at an incredible athletic level, at some point in their life, they were slow. When they were in elementary school, they couldn't run a 460, you know. So, like, these things are are developing, and a part of that is, you know, our, our fitness is changing. And I think that a lot of times the reality is in all of our endurance sports, our lack of speed is oftentimes a surplus of fatigue more than anything else. And I tend to think that most endurance athletes, if they're consistently active, are a lot stronger than they realize. And the reason why... Um, they don't have speed is because their approach to training is screwing them over. And so on the one hand, I do think if you can't go well over two, four minutes in your discipline, you aren't going to go well over long distances either. And I think even if you're an Ironman uh, athlete, I would want to be able to run a good mile. You know, Um, I would want to have a minimum standard for what I could run in the mile. And I know that probably basically nobody <laughs> in that Ironman community is going to hear this and be like, holy crap, I'm going to start, I need to see what I can do for a mile. And But I guarantee you that you probably are not able to produce a good mile. And it's like, if you don't have the strength to run hard for four to five minutes, I don't think that's a good sign. You know, um, and as, uh, in the book, Easy Interval Training, Locke says that you know, fast running is fast running. Cause he says, look, the schedules, the training schedule you might look at for the mile and the marathon are basically the same thing. Cause fast running is fast running. And, you know, endurance is this individual component that we should think about as being specific workouts instead of this generic, well, I just go out and I put in time and then, yeah. Right. And it's sort of like, I don't, and that's what we see is the explanation for those, um, day-to-day aerobic activities in these sports is none. It's like a black hole. And I, I think that the lactate threshold understanding that I've proposed on the podcast, I think resolves that quandary. That's another piece of evidence for that. And so I think the right aerobic training increases our speed because we will just go faster and have more speed if we stop training too hard and training too hard in terms of intensive, intensive nature of training practices. And I think the speed in the racing, right, we can't, we often want the ability to accelerate or respond to surges or increase in tempo. And then we complain about lack of speed when we cannot. So then people go out and try to smash that speed barrier. And then they try to get tired and go really fast in training. No, do not do this. This is not going to work. I don't know how to state that any more clearly. We do not need to be tired. Okay. That's not what allows for speed. Speed is fluency. Fatigue reduces our fluency. If you want to have speed in a race, you have to learn how to not be tired. And then if you want to have good speed, you need to practice in a way that is within fluency. Okay? And that's what we try to do in the training for any endurance event with this stuff. If we can't run 400 meter in 60, um, or we cannot do 400 watts for 60 seconds on the bike, then of course we can't do that at the end of the race. But to develop that, we don't say, okay, I'm now going to just start trying to run or ride, let's say cycling, try to ride 500 watts for as long as I can. That's not going to work. Do 10-second pops at a time at you know a hard, higher level of watts, but keep it smooth. Take a rest. 
Okay, it might be hard once if you keep going, but you should be stopping before that happens. Don't worry about the dose. Don't worry about if it looks legit, like you've done enough reps. Don't worry about specific power. Practice doing the movement, and the dose is proximal, um, and then you you will get better. And you know, here's a, a case study from personal experience, and I'll try to come back and put this into a graphic and post it on Instagram if you want to see it. I'm not going to read through this, but my freshman year at Bates College running track, um, predominantly what we did was high intensity intervals with the rest of maybe be maybe two to three to four sets of, and it was 400s, 300s, 200s, and they were way faster than I could race or most of us were racing. So like the first workout back was after winter break. Um, and you know, none of us had access to tracks or any place to actually practice doing this in the winter at home for those three weeks. So it accentuates the trauma. And I remember doing this and it was like, now it's the same thing that you might feel if you do a marathon when you're not properly prepared. Like that was the level of messed upness in my legs after doing this. Um, and on the one hand I look at it and it's like, well, it wasn't a really impressive workout but if we look at the context for the racing i think we'll see something more interesting here so this was two sets of four by 400 with 90 seconds rest and then a four minute set rest and my first set was 70 70 70 69 and then set two 69 70 68 and then we had uh you know next day went out and ran three miles and eight miles and then on Wednesday, so the first workout was Monday. Then Wednesday, three by 300, one minute rest, 200, three minute set rest. So 46.30, set two, 46.30, set three, 47.30. And then the next week I twisted my ankle um, so I couldn't do uh, anything. And so I went out for these track workouts, thank God. Um, that didn't really help because I went out to do the first meet and I felt fast the first 400 and I ended up running 458 in the mile and I got last <laughs> and I ran 214 in the 800 and you know I, I'm sure that twisting my ankle was you know probably not helping right but it's like okay ask yourself right and the issue here isn't oh okay this guy he sucks lemons that's not really the point if you want to think that I, I could care less um I wouldn't be talking about this stuff if if I was looking for people to, to build a statue of me out of macaroni. Um, but this, we're looking at the reflection here between the racing and the workouts, like the workout, you wouldn't think that if you're doing that workout, that that would equate to that for, um, a race. And you would think you're like, well, okay, wow, if this guy's doing those workouts, then he's doing that in the race, there's something wrong, but nope, that was not the paradigm. The paradigm was, you need to go harder. And so we continued uh, in this manner. Like another workout was uh, three by 400, 400, 200, one minute rest, three sets of that, five minute set rest, and three then three by 200, two minute rest, 300, two minute rest, and then another meet, and then a 449 in the mile, and then a 252 and a thousand. And I was frustrated. And then my training log, I, you know, look back and I, I went out in the evening back over to our indoor track and I ran a 1200 and 337. I ran two by 231 and 30. And then I ran two times a hundred and 14.5 and 14.0. 
And that's where my mindset was at. Like, what the hell is wrong with me? Why can't I run fast? And, um, you know, that's obviously a coaching issue, right? You know, the coach is supposed to be there for the athletes in this regard. And that just wasn't, didn't, that's not what happened. I, I don't, I'm not saying it's like the end of the world. It's just a fact. It just wasn't what was going on. Because, you know, a, an alternative coaching strategy would be like not having athletes go out and do <laughs> stuff like that. Of course, you know, they've gone home and it's the evening on a Saturday on campus. And, uh, you know, nobody's going to stop me, right? Nobody knows. I didn't tell anybody I did that. But it was, you know, more workouts like this. And, you know, I, again, I'll post this stuff on the Instagram if you really want to see it all. But then you progress to doing a meet, next meet. Uh, I opened, I went 30 for the first 200, then 33, and then ended up running a 447. <laughs> I felt, I remember clearly still that feeling of just feeling, wow, I just feel so good. And I went through in 30 and I was like, oh my God, I'm screwed. You know, it was too late, right? <laughs> Nothing, I wasn't going to come back from that. Um, you know, I came back and, and then in the meet I did 211. And then um, next meet was a 207, 800, and then a one mile in 441, 800, and 209. Um, so then we had a vacation week, and then there was this interesting phenomena. Uh, we came back and we did some four mile steady state, and in my notes I wrote 550 to 610, which probably means I sucked and I didn't want to write down how much I sucked. <laughs> so I just wrote what the range was. I probably went out and ran like 630 pace. Um, but then we had. Um, I had basically like three or four workouts in a row, um, actually six workouts in a row that were very different and were actually started feeling good. And these workouts were eight by 800 with one minute rest. And I was 245, 245, 244, 244, 243, 243, 240, 223. And then the next one was six by 1,000, one minute rest, 324, 325, 324, 323, 312, 312. And I remember doing that and um, in my workout group, this other guy who we called Big Ticket after Kevin Garnett because he was literally nothing like Kevin Garnett. So it was ironic. Um, but we were looking at each other and talking. We were like literally like laughing because we could not believe how comfortable and easy this felt. Um, and then you know went out and did some 200-meter hill sprints at some absolutely insane gradient. And I was just trashing everybody um, on the team. I don't really know why. Um, maybe they were too smart to try to run that hard. But they were like, you know, about 70 to 75 second efforts. And I wrote in my notes, in quotes, wicked easy, right? So I know that felt good. And then um, that weekend I ran 10 and a half miles in the morning and I went down to three miles in the afternoon and I just went along and did it 810 pace. I mean, sorry, 810 pace. Whoa, 810 pace, that's incredible. <laughs> 610 pace, right? So, okay, that feels pretty good, right? Uh, then we did 6 by 800, two-minute rest, and those were 232, 231, 230, 230, 229, 225. We did the hill sprints again, and I wrote, after the hill sprints, I wrote pretty easy stuff, okay? And then we go back to the high-intensity intervals, Okay. And that interval, I was feeling, and in my note, all of a sudden I started writing and I'd write, you know, how did I feel? And usually I'd write good, which meant like not good, but I didn't want to admit to myself I didn't feel good. But all of a sudden I'm writing like, feel incredible, feel absolutely amazing, feeling awesome, exclamation point. 
you know, so it was different. And I remember this phase. It really burns in, into your memory because it's so different than how crappy and inadequate you feel the rest of the time. But then we go back to high intensity. So like five by 600, one minute recovery, 400 and three minutes set rest, eight by 400, five times 500, 90 second rest, 300, um, four by 400, five minute rest, four by 200. And then I uh, got to the first outdoor track meet and I did was put in the 5,000 and I felt really good the first mile. I went out in 518 then I just got one of those crazy side stitches and I just like couldn't run and I ended up doing like a 1750. I've now if I was now I was doing that I would have just stopped because there's just no point right when those happen like you can't you can't move properly so it's too bad because you know I think that basically would have been an opportunity for me before all the fatigue from these crappy workouts started added up again to actually go out and do something. And maybe I could have gone 518, you know, 510, 505 or something like that, which, you know, considering, you know, that I opened up the indoor season, like absolutely, you know, squatting bricks <laughs> onto the track, that would have been a pretty big swing for me. Um, and then we're doing four by 300, one minute rest, 200, three minute rest. Um, and then we're doing 200 all out, three by 300, 200, um, and three, you know, and then meet 417, 1500, 208, 800. You know, so these races are starting to go much better than indoor track, right? And so you might say, okay, well, so these intervals, that's bringing the speed. Um, hold your horses. So then we did uh, the next week. Uh, we had an April vacation week, and uh, I just was at home. And so I just did eight by 200. And I did them in all be like 33, 34, 34, 33, 33, 33, 32, 33. And I remember feeling not great. So now these good legs were kind of gone. Uh, and then we had meat and I ran 415.1. And little did I know <laughs> this was going to be my high water mark. And um, the next week I had to do this workout of two times... 590 second rest, 300, and then uh, 330 between the sets. And so I was 84.51, 84.50. And then I had to do four by 200 with 35 second rest, 30, 30, 30, 30. And then we went to the conference meet and I ran 424 in the 1500 and got second to last. Uh, and I went out and I it was in there were like two heats. And I obviously I was in the slower heat and I, you know, was feeling like I was going to run well and I probably went through 300 meters in 46 and then by the 500 meter mark I was in last place and like my legs didn't work and I was like I was not in the race and I was like looking around and it's one of those things where it's like it's not good sportsmanship to drop out but there's like you know I look back at this and it's like what was the point you know I'm just embarrassing myself <laughs> You know, the reality is I was going to be embarrassed, you know, regardless. I could care less what the other people thought. But, you know, for me and my expectations, you know, I was super disappointed. Um, but like two weeks previous, um, you know, I had gone out on a training run and I had run eight miles. And I had, you know, first four miles and 26.04, second four miles, 22.09. And I just felt like a machine. You know, but, you know, as these workouts added up, it's like, where was that? And that was 
pretty much, you know, it. And that was the week before I did that 415. And then and that, that meet where I came back and bombed in the 1500, you know, I got put in the DMR because guys are really good at whining about being in relays. Uh, and I ran like a 328, 1200, you know, so really not much better than my 1500 meter. So what's interesting here, and this is what I want to emphasize relative to my concept of speed, that these intervals that people traditionally think of as, as speed work are making, were making me slow. I was struggling um, and struggling even by the standard of if you can do those for the workouts, you shouldn't be running that bad in the races. And, and that's a reflection of the fatigue. And that when you switched, we switched to these significantly slower 800s and thousands for just, you know, three weeks. I immediately felt great, immediately felt so much better. Um, and so is this replicable? Well, in the 2009 season, the same thing happened. We got to that same phase and we did that. And I immediately started to feel awesome again. And somehow that year I ended up getting some sort of ankle pain, but um, which didn't go away. So I, I you know, tried to race and I, I couldn't. It was probably some sort of stress fracture or something. I just like, you know, stopped racing and then rode the road bike for the rest of the spring. And then when I started running again in the summer, it was gone. Um, but, you know, before I got that ankle thing that flared up, you know, there was a guy in, on the team my year who everyone was like, oh, this guy ran 23 for the 200 in high school, which, you know, probably was like a 25, <laughs> somebody hand timing it from the other side of the track. But I don't say that to criticize him, but more so to, you know, moderate my achievement here. But I remember doing 600s. And, um, like, you know, after this period of doing these 800s and these thousands, so all of a sudden I like, I'm actually a runner and, uh, you know, this guy, uh, you know, was one of these guys like, that's what he did. And, you know, there were a couple guys who their thing was, um, they weren't really doing any better in the meets than I was, but they liked to try to stick it to me in these workouts. And, um, you know, the whole culture of racing workouts is a different issue. Also doesn't help speed development, just makes everything worse. But I remember just like absolutely owning this guy in these 600s. And we would just come down to the last 50 meters. And I was just, maybe I was being a bit of a dick, but I was just sort of looking at him. And I was like, basically like, oh, you want to go? And he was like tying up. And, you know, for me, it was gratifying to sort of, oh, you know, how the table turns here. But also, you know, it was evidence for like, oh, all of a sudden I, I have this thing that feels like speed. And, you know, the thing is that like nobody is fast when their muscles are fatigued and that's what overtraining is. It's, it's not practicing a lot. It's practicing hard. And, you know, my coping mechanism, and I say this is a joke, but my coping mechanism for, you know, my running experience in college is I'd like to say that, well, I think really I'm a 14, unrealized 14, 15 miler, not just a 14, 15, 1500 meter runner, because I think, you know, that should have been the progression, you know, probably realistically. It doesn't matter, but, you know, it's always fun to pretend you're better at this stuff than you are. Um, but the refrain was that just like, you know, you had to push yourself and you had to try harder. And the coach said that uh, if you're not a little bit injured, you're not training hard enough to get fast. <laughs> so or we didn't take any easy days. You know, when I did this, we went hard every day. Um, that's great. Right. And he ran 403 in the mile. So it was sort of like, OK, I guess that's just what we're doing. Um, and I kind of had the mindset personally too, and maybe this is defensive. I, I do think the track workouts were better than my, my races, 
but even the track sessions were kind of screwed by fatigue because a lot of those I was staggering, right? And I like that 600, it was repeat 600s felt totally different when we got away from all those crazy workouts. And, you know, I also think it was a limiting factor. I was one of the few guys on the team doing a long run. And so I would go out on Sunday, do this super hilly run, and I was chugging. And I'm pretty sure that I was going over what we would call LT1 or what I would just say, you know, the true threshold. And in fact, I would say that in general, I was more or less always over threshold when I was running. I was pushing all the time and because it just never, I always felt like I wasn't, because that was the the mindset. If you're just a runner, a lot of times what you learn is like the faster you run in training, the better you get, which, you know, I, I now I understand is wrong. And, and for me personally, as an athlete, it's been a lot harder to learn this. And it was very easy for me to coach people right away because I recognized what was a mistake, but my personal you know, sense of, um, you know, self-doubt and uncertainty about my ability to perform and my level of preparedness really adversely affect my ability to do what I wanted to be able to do athletically. And, you know, but like doing a meet and then a hard long run and then a track workout, then a recovery days that were never really that easy, um, but still running, like I said, you know, basically at, you know, minimum LT and then, um, you know, I mean, that's, we didn't know that we were just running fairly steady, kind of hard ish. Cause that's what we did. We went out and, you know, people were amped and we're running together and it was more exciting to run a little bit stronger. I, you know, and then you, know, you get to the meet and, um, used up all the strength that you had before you got to the meet. And I didn't recognize that that was fatigue, honestly, uh, which seems absurd to me now, but I, I didn't think of it that way. Uh, some people say when they get older that they can't recover as fast, and I, I doubt it. I just think people get older, I mean, yeah, at a certain age maybe, but like in your people are like, oh, I'm 30, I don't recover as fast. Like, oh, shut up. Like, you can't, that's not what's going on. Okay, maybe you're just becoming slightly less stupid, right? You're, you're learning, you know what, this is not really worth it. I'm tired, you know, going out isn't going to do anything. But people say, oh, I can't recover as fast. No, when you were younger, you were dumb um, because you didn't know as much, you hadn't had enough experience yet, and so you just you know, push through things. And, you know, that's what I did. And basically the more suffering we inflicted on ourselves, the more we thought we would improve. And, you know, you just go on and on with that pattern. And in essence, this is not speed. This is how most runners think you develop speed. And I would, I find that it is generally seems to be true in other endurance sports that doing these high intensity intervals is what people think makes you fast. And it is not correct. And the people who recommend these I think either when they did them, they were assigned paces that happened to be where they were basically coming in with significantly less millimole than other people were. So they had this like false positive, you know, or they're people who've never really done this themselves and they have clearly haven't had this experience. And I think the experience I'm describing is borderline the norm. I think probably 90% of us have this experience in some form of another. And then some of us are better at working our way out of it than others. And like, I have no doubt um, that doing those um, four by 200s after those f- split 800s, those sets of 500, 300, doing four 200s in 30. And the best time I had run for an 800 all year was 207. So now I'm doing four by 230 with a 35 second recovery. Obviously, that screwed me for that conference meet, you know? So la vie, you know, that's what happens. But I think that you look at this and I'm kind of glad I wrote this stuff down because now later I can look at this and it's like, whoa, this is kind of some interesting primary documents uh, evidence-wise to consider. And, you know, I think this shows, all goes to show basically that 
speed is more of a quality of capacity to perform. So, and that's where I say, you know, not just for running, but in any of these things, test your speed. You know, you can test it over eight seconds, maybe up to a minute, maybe across multiple dis- disciplines. Um, and, you know, by focusing on this coordination, fluidity, proximal speed dosing, and I'll explain more about what that means in just a second, you know, maybe see if over time you can hold a higher percentage of your maximum speed for longer. So if you test your eight seconds and your 60 seconds, and what is the percentage difference? Like what percentage of your eight seconds is your 60 seconds? And then as you practice using this strategy of speed that I'm describing, how is that changing? Are you seeing an increase Right? Can you do a higher percentage of your eight seconds for a minute? I would hypothesize, yes, maybe not. Right? You've got to test that and see. But decide if you have enough speed or not when you test. Okay, I can do 1,200 watts for 10 seconds on the bike. I'm not saying that's world class. Okay, I'm not world class. I don't think it's necessary to be world class <laughs> to to like these sports and talk about them and to learn about them and you know, get better at understanding how to train. I actually think that not being good at them is more important than being good at them because people who are good at them, they're just say, oh, this is the training, you just do this. And people who aren't good at them, you will have to learn to ask questions if you're going to keep doing this stuff. And, and that's certainly been true to my experience. But, you know, so I think you look at that speed, you assess that, and then you say, based on um, whether or not you think that's good enough, decide what you need to do. But like for me in running, you know, 12.7 for 100. That's good enough. Okay, 1,200 watts for 10 seconds on the bike. That's good enough to do the, you know, Kangamangas, you know, time trial, you know, which at best, you know, the course record is like 58 minutes, right? So <laughs> 1,200 watts for 10 seconds, speed is not the limiting factor there. Um, and then you need to decide, right, but, you know, do you want to change it or not? And I think that's where you look at your goals. And a coach, could help you evaluate that. And here at Black Cats Run, send us a message. We're happy to conference with people and do an evaluation. And then we can talk about, um, you know, coaching and, and developing a training plan and using our responsive approach. So the proximal speed dosing. Okay, what does this mean? Well, if you think of speed as a skill or a dance instead of a energy system phenomena, well, then you know that if you aren't practicing it well, you aren't going to get better. And practicing well means proficiency. And now we know, and by extension, this means slowing down is actually a key part of getting fast. You got to do a little bit every day, touch on it a little bit. And I'm not always good at that personally. When I get up and I run in the morning, you know, I am usually jamming it in. Um, and I have a hard, i nervous about being late for work. So I really don't do a good job of doing strides. I should, I should be doing that. Um, maybe recording this podcast will make me a little more accountable to myself. But, you know, track track what you're doing. Everything you do in training, you should be able to track it. I think a lot of us don't track it because there's no pattern to see, and we don't want to be reminded of that. Um, but I think if you're seeing no pattern, your training doesn't work, okay? Um, you know, you got to do something about that. you got to recognize that the progress isn't happening um, because if you're getting fitter, you should be able to see it. And you don't see it by going maximum effort. You should see it within your controlled efforts, you know, at the same controlled efforts, you should be seeing improvement along that scale. You know, and I think chances are basically you're probably strong enough. Unless you're new to sports, uh, you're probably already strong enough. And if you aren't, right, well, then you got to make a major change in your training until you are. But when you're doing this stuff, being proximal, right, in your proximal uh, zone of development means resisting the urge to strain. 
Because if you're straining, that means you're well over the line of benefit and you're just wasting your time at that point. Don't do that. Um, but at some point we need probably a coach or a teacher, somebody to help us, you know, figure this out. Right. And, you know, hearing about it helps, but you've got to go out there, have your experience, you know, analyze it, not just in the data, but in subjectively, how does it feel? How should it feel? You know, and this is what coaching actually is, is it's the ability to communicate with somebody and get them to do something that they wouldn't be able to figure out on their own. That's great coaching. Selling people schedules online that anybody could write is not great coaching. If that offends people, I apologize. I'm not trying to be um, offensive, but you know the market paradigm of this garbage coaching is a huge problem because it's really limiting the quality of the experience that most people get to have with this stuff, and I don't think that's fair. So if you do this stuff correctly, though, um, like you'll find that you're sort of jogging when you open a race effort, no matter how fast you go, or the equivalent of that. And, and that's what you want. And um, and then you also need to not like screw yourself over because that can, you know, come back to haunt you because it might make it very possible to go out and overcook. Um, but it works well with the LT training that we've been talking about on other episodes because the LT training isn't that fatiguing. So you can do that lactate threshold and then just add a little proximal speed development at the end. And we also want to practice, um, you know, that feeling of racing, which racing needs to feel easy. If you want to run a good 1500, you basically got to feel easy going through the 1200 meter mark. It's only the last 300 that it should start to get hard. And you talk to great successful 1500 meter runners, I think they'll all agree that that's generally true. Um, that most of their best races actually probably felt pretty good, felt pretty easy. And that's, you know, the antithesis of what we think. That we think these people are out there arm wrestling with pain. And that's just not true. I mean, right, there's there's working hard and feeling good. And then there's just like, I got chained to the back of a school bus and got dragged around on the morning pickup route, not feeling good. That's different. That's a different kind of suffering. Um, but when we're practicing feeling proficient and fluid, that's actually how racing is supposed to feel. So this idea that you're practicing for racing by smashing yourself is wrong because when you're racing, you don't go out and start smashing yourself. That's not what you want to do. You're trying to, you're always trying to be within what you can do because you can only do what you can do and learning what that is and learning that how that should feel. That's what a big part of what training should be doing cognitively. You know, proximal development training is, think of it as if you're walking on a cloud. It would take intense concentration to tread as lightly and easily as possible. And you know, but this is the addictive feeling of training and racing that I talked about in the introduction too. You know, I, I used to um, try to tell one athlete I worked with for a little while that, you know, you've got to get consistent with these sessions because you've got to get this aerobic fitness going because once you get to the feeling of fit, you know, and yes, there is always going to be a period of time when you're out of shape where it's probably not going to feel good for whatever. And then once you get fitness, though, you get that momentum because it's fun. It's That's where you want to be. You're in that flow state. You feel competent. And for this athlete, I, you know, it didn't matter how we tried to structure it. The engagement just wasn't there. And so she never got to that point. And, you know, that's the thing is it's not about like it being hard. It's it's a, a different issues when we're not engaging and not getting there. It's not because it's not hard enough. Um, you know, a lot of times it's just like a personal thing, like, you know, maybe we like the idea of it, but we don't really value the outcomes as much. Um, one other thing here before we get to the conclusion 
um, of strategically planning the speed. I think economy is something we want to mention briefly. So the concept of how economy works is an idea of efficiency. And I want to give this a moment of consideration because it bears some similarities to the economy, of, to the concept of speed. So speed, if we're saying, is a factor of ease. I mean, what's the ease factor at which we can access our maximum speed? Um, that's one definition. Running economy, in particular, is this idea of like, what's the volume of oxygen needed to move at a given speed? And I think that's a whole different can of beans than what we're talking about here. And some other episode, maybe we'll get to that if people are interested in that. But if we take the idea of something just being um, economic as a concept of efficiency, then I think we can ask the question, how does speed relate to this concept of efficiency? So not running economy, but economy in a more broad efficiency sense. And I think that largely when we try to sprint, right, if we feel like we can't sprint our way out of a wet paper bag, then that's really a kind of a lack of efficiency. Whereas when we can feel like we're really channeling our um, intent effectively, you know, we can, that's a distinct difference. And I think we can validate this subjective experience by looking at what we know about the nervous system. So long-term potentiation, which has to do with how, you know, we develop uh, synaptic um, pathways for the nervous system to communicate about movement, I, that's the change that we're seeing. Like it, So it literally does become easier to create this movement as we practice doing the movement. And this is like why, A, we have this feeling of, I should be faster because we don't have that long-term potentiation in place. And if we don't practice this stuff, we don't have that happening. And that's why I kind of made that analogy to, to dance um, and, and the way dance works as a sort of a athletic art, if you will. And so this is a nervous system change. And I think recognizing that further reinforces that we only ever want to be training proximally, right? Within fluidity and quality of movement is very important, essential, and below fatigue, even though this stuff is hard. But that's why the reps are so short and so few, because we're trying to avoid fatigue. Fatigue is not, when you're fatigued, you're not getting better. Okay. And, and that's a common misconception. Um, and this is understood, by the way, as best practice for improvement in a lot of other areas. And But I think partly that's there's no cult of pain associated with performance in things like maybe dance or music. So they don't have this weird fascination with flagellation as this path forward to improvement. But in endurance sports, you know, there's the capacity for, you know, immense suffering. And, um, you know, you can't, right, you know, get where you want, which is being able to access your own speed with ease unless you practice developing ease. So it is a mindset shift. And for some people, it's a big paradigm shift. And I know that uh, for some listeners of the podcast, this stuff is rattling the cages of your paradigm. And it's hard because you're, you know, now feeling caught, you know, between a rock and a hard place with this stuff. But I think if you really, you know, look critically at what you're doing and, you know, can you validate that? You know, I, I'm trying to making some compelling arguments for why what you're doing is a waste of your time. And, um, you know, like if you recognize that practice must be done with elegance, then your nervous system will improve in the way that you want. And, you know, you like, for example, you learn how to ride a bike by staying upright, not by falling over. Balance is learned from balancing. So we learn from failure, but we don't like learn or we don't improve by failing. Right. So I've learned from a lot of my failures right? But I don't, I didn't learn. I didn't get better. Those failures didn't make me better 
they made me literally worse. But intellectually, I can learn from them, and then that opens the possibility to do things differently. But you can't do that unless you change your mindset in the first place. Um, so here, at the absolute highest end of intensity, I guess very far away from threshold, uh, we see the same principle that pro- applies. It needs to feel comfortable, competent, and easy. And efficiency of movement, economy of movement, that's speed. So in conclusion, strategic planning of speed. I think all training is about trade-offs. Training is done with our resources of time and energy. And if we spend that in one area, we can't spend it in another area. If we could, training would be very easy. We could just beat our head against the wall every day and everybody would be good. And it just clearly does not work that way. Um, And I think you want to think of X different components of speed. Number one, fluidity, feeling as smooth as you can, accessing whatever that reasonable benchmark power is. Second is power capacity for speed. How much strength can you reasonably apply? And I think watts per kilograms here probably matters since speed is velocity. And then third, um, how are you, what are you going to emphasize when you're thinking about speed? You can train for strength, then you can train to apply that. But I think that, you know, this is where you got to evaluate this with a coach. And this is the hardest thing to do is to figure out the intensity and then learn to regulate that. But, you know, what compromises do you have to make to accomplish that? If you can't get the aerobic capacity to even um, be at the point where you can be there at the end of the race to apply this remarkable speed, then have you really accomplished anything? That's one step forward, two steps back. Ultimately, I think we're all looking for a way to use speed to allow ourselves to access the goal times, right? The goal velocity, the race pace we're hoping to hit. And we, we're hoping that it can feel easy and automatic to get into that tempo and just become a test of stamina or endurance. I think we all can feel in the pool, on the bike, the running, on skates, on skis, rollerblades, whatever you're doing, um, we can feel that lack of coordination and the temptation is to push against it. But that's not going to work because that's not how those synaptic pathways um, that's not how that long-term potentiation is going to work. Um, we want to think about this differently. Back off. You're walking on a cloud, and the speed will come. And remember that your fatigue will significantly affect how much speed you can generate on any given day. Think about the patterns in your training, and when have you looked for speed? Have you allowed the symbolic system of training practices to cause you to see what you're doing um, in a particular white light and interpret it as the only way forward? And what can you see if you recognize and set aside those biases of what training leads to what outcome and instead look and say to yourself, as I train, what is happening to me? Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you're joining the podcast, check out our other episodes. We're also trying to do a little bit on YouTube. Uh, if people are interested in that, you can check that out. Um, if there's movement on that channel, we'll try to do more and more with that. Uh, we've got some other episodes coming up on similar vein, cueing, recognizing, training intensity. We'll catch you next time.